And let me invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, you can find that on page 1177 of the Pew Bible, if you're using that. That's 1 Timothy 1, page 1177. This morning, I want to look with you at what it means to fight the good fight. We've probably all heard that phrase before, but what does it actually mean to fight the good fight as a Christian? How are you supposed to do that? And what happens when we fail to fight? Our passage today, I think, helps answer those questions, and it does so in a way that is somewhat surprising and exceptionally challenging. But before we consider the battle, the battle of our lives, I want to remind us that we, together, are in a war. Before we focus down to the hand-to-hand combat of our lives, let's zoom out and see the battle as it rages worldwide. It's easy for us at times to forget that we live in a world that has been at war nonstop since the time of Adam and Eve. This is the longest war in human history. There have been no truces, no ceasefires, and no breaks. Even the infamous Hundred Years' War in Europe ended eventually, and it at least had pauses and lulls, but this war never rests. John Bunyan is best known for Pilgrim's Progress, but growing up as a boy, My favorite book of his was entitled The Holy War, The Holy War. As a Puritan, of course, he had a subtitle, a big long one. Here was the subtitle, The Holy War Made by King Shaddai Upon Diabolus to Regain the Metropolis of the World or The Losing and Taking Again of the Town of Mansoul. Bunyan knew that from one angle, the Christian life was a pilgrimage, and so he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. But as the victim of persecution, a man who was imprisoned for Christ, Bunyan also knew that the Christian life was a battle and that it was part of a greater war. There is then a violent war going on around us and in us every day. In fact, it is so violent that even secular people, people unaffiliated with any religious faith, have noticed this war. Most people, even secular people, will speak of a war between good and evil. They sense it. What they don't realize, however, and what we usually forget as well, is how this war started and what is really going on in it and what it is really about This war, this eternal war that's been going on since our beginning, started with a discussion. Believe it or not, it started with a theological discussion. Satan taught heresy, other doctrine, to Adam and Eve. He began, you'll recall if you remember Genesis, he began by questioning the veracity of God's word. He asked Eve... Did God really say that? Then Satan went on to retell their story to them. He persuaded them that they were not the products of a loving and faithful creator. Instead, he asserted that their relationship with God was what we modern people would call toxic. 
and that God was holding them back from achieving their full potential. When Adam and Eve opened themselves up to this teaching, they shipwrecked their faith and they lost their good conscience. No longer clear of conscience, they felt their nakedness and they turned on each other. To their horror, their great horror, their son Cain followed the new heresy. In an act of perfect Darwinism, Cain killed the brother who stood in the way of his personal happiness. This spirit is in each of us today. The blood of Cain flows through us. There is, after all, only a small line between Cain's motto, am I my brother's keeper, and the chance that we hear today, my body, my choice. Times may have changed, but the conflict is the same. This is the old heresy, the old war, and this is the war that Timothy must fight. How can he stand? How can we stand against something so strong, something that flows around us and terrifyingly is still in us? This is what our passage this morning is about. Would you please stand then as we read God's word? 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 18, 19, and 20. 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, you have promised to establish your strength and your victory through the mouths of infants and babes. And so once again, this infant cries out to you for strength, that through the preaching of your word, the enemy would be defeated, your people would be encouraged, lies would be exposed, and we would go out from this place encouraged and ready to fight the good fight. Father, we pray that you would do all this in us and through us, so that your son would be glorified and so that his victory would be announced in all the world. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So there is a great war going on in our world, and it's been going on since the beginning of our history. But you may be asking, okay, that sounds good, but how do I fit into this? I get that there's this big cosmic struggle going on between good and evil, but what does that have to do with little old me on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, the first thing you need to know and the first thing you need to understand and what will really make, I think, this passage come alive for you is when you understand that you are really in this war and you're not a general standing at a distance planning strategy. No, you're on the front line with a bayonet and a box of bullets. It's rainy, it's muddy, and there is smoke in your eyes. To make matters worse, 
There are no clear lines of battle in this war. The enemy may come from in front of you, from what we call the world, or the assault may come from behind, that is, from those you trusted, from those in the church. But far more terrible and sinister is the ever-present creeping reminder that the worst assaults come from within. Commenting on this text, John Calvin admitted candidly every thought Every thought and feeling that we have is an adversary that discourages us from following God and his word. So we are at war, not just in some big cosmic good and evil sort of way, but personally, individually, at war in ourselves, at war in our home, at war in our bedroom, always militant, always fighting. Sometimes even our sleep is war. Dreams echo with the day's battles. To remind us of this, the Bible repeatedly tells us that we are at war and warns us to take this seriously. Jesus promised us that we would face hostility. He said, in the world, you will have trouble. And Paul famously urged all believers to put on the whole armor of God. For this war. Don't imagine then, don't imagine that you are going to be allowed to live your life quietly. Don't imagine that you can just go home with your family and rest, that the enemy will leave you alone, that you'll be allowed to go about your business. It's a war and you're in it. Christians of past ages, I think, We're better about this than we are. The Heidelberg Catechism, as it describes what a Christian is, puts front and center that a Christian is one who's at war with the devil and is making war every day. Uh, But in the Western world, the modern Western world, our culture, we tend to think about following Jesus as something more romantic, almost an affair of the heart. And yes, there are breathtaking moments of delight with our Savior. However, we need the wisdom of Bunyan and others It is a war. Every day, every decision will come down to this. Who am I going to believe today? And who am I going to serve? Myself or God? My culture or scripture? In some huge irony that I cannot quite convey in words, we live our lives in a sort of endless cycle of our first parent's temptation Every moment of our modern life, we relive those simple Eden questions. What's true and who will I trust? These questions wake us up in the morning and fill our days and our thoughts. But there is great hope for us. We have a champion who has crushed the head of the serpent and who always fights beside us and for us, even when it seems, and sometimes it does, that he has fallen back a little and left us exposed to fight alone. It's only to train our courage. And he's always right by our side once again. Now, Timothy has been sent into a dangerous and difficult place. In one beautiful sentence, it's all one sentence in Greek, verses 18 to 20, Paul calls Timothy to this battle to wage the good warfare 
this morning, I want to get into three dimensions that I want you to notice with me and I want to underline for you. First of all, he is to fight as one under orders. Second, he is to reinforce himself from the past. And lastly, he is to fight with both hands. Let's see these things together. So first notice that Timothy's spiritual warfare, on ours as well, is that of a soldier under orders. Look what Paul writes in verse 18. This charge, or literally in Greek, this command I am entrusting to you, Timothy, my child. Here and throughout the letter, Paul is concerned that there be a clear chain of command and a clear mission. Timothy is not, and we should not see the people of the Bible this way, Timothy is not a solo cowboy making it up as he goes. That is not the picture in this letter. That's not the picture anywhere in the New Testament of the pastor or the prophet or anyone else. Rather, Timothy is a soldier under particular orders. In fact, this isn't just true of Timothy alone. Paul, you'll remember, begins this letter by putting himself into this structure as well. Look at verse 1 of our chapter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, how? By the command of God our Savior. As apostle, as we've noticed before, an apostle is someone called directly by Christ who has foundational authority for setting up the church. In places like Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, Paul makes it clear, and this is something we always have to remember, Paul makes it clear in those passages that all other officers, elders, deacons, and pastors, who come after the apostles must build on the apostolic foundation and are not free, are not free to lay a new foundation. Now, as a true son and an ordained man in ministry, Timothy, verse 3, is to remain at Ephesus so that you may, same word, command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Under apostolic authority and in keeping with the revealed word of God, Timothy can and actually he must command and rebuke those who are teaching false doctrine. With the false teachers, then, he is called to strength, all rebuke, guns blazing. But then notice in verse 5 where this word command comes up again, that with the congregation, not the false teachers, but the congregation now, his command, his charge changes a little bit. He is to teach them to love in purity and to hold the faith in sincerity. So look at verse 5. Paul writes, the aim, again, same word, the aim of our command or charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So this is a mission, a command, a calling that will require thorough teaching, setting an example, and real patience with the flock. There is, I think, only one analogy in Scripture that can capture the flexibility of this calling, this command, and that is the image of the shepherd. At one moment, think about it, at one moment, the shepherd is all violence as he confronts a wolf, his weapon in his hand. But the very next moment, he is all tenderness 
as he goes after a wandering lamb. He has to know how to deliver a newborn baby lamb, how to lead and call the sheep, and how to keep them settled and safe. We will explore this uh, more later, but for now, please don't miss this basic picture Paul is once again painting. Timothy is a soldier who has a calling. Timothy is a man with real authority, but he's also under authority. I think this pattern is so crucial for us today in our cultural context. American pastors and elders need to be able to relate clearly what their authority is exactly. Today, so many pastors and elders are so genuinely afraid of how power can be abused that they just flatly refuse to stand up to anyone. There's nothing soldier-like about them at all. They don't feel and sound like men with a command or a charge. On the flip side, the other side of the coin, other ministers and elders sound commanding, but don't sound submissive. So when elders use their biblical authority, we must be clear about where that authority comes from and what its limits are. And all the while, we must speak clearly about our own life under authority. Who do we answer to? Who do we practice submission to with God and with other men? But this isn't just a reality for pastors like Timothy, is it? This is a basic reality of spiritual warfare for all Christians. We are all under orders. First and foremost, all of us must take our orders like Timothy from the apostles. That means studying and obeying God's word. But alongside that, we must be careful to submit to biblical and lawful authority. This is especially true when it means doing something I don't want to do. It's then especially that our children need to see that mom and dad are under authority as well, that mom and dad are not just preaching submission, but actually living it in lovely and thoughtful ways. Throughout my life as a Christian, I've been horrified on, on a number of occasions, I have to say, to see parents in shock that their children are rebels. And one of the saddest things is to point out to them how they have lived their whole life in rebellion against their elders and pastors and their government, how they slandered everyone around them in authority, and then with great surprise they find that their children are doing what they do and not what they said. And so submission, being under orders, is not something just for Timothy or just for pastors or just for elders, but something we're all called to. This command, though, that he has given is also personal, you notice. Now, depending on your life experience, all this talk of submission may sound a little demeaning to you. Maybe you've been abused by someone who tried to turn you into a kind of mindless slave. Let me assure you that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're not talking about blind, mindless submission. Rather, we're talking about an intelligent, thoughtful following of God's word. A proper submission to God and others that is controlled and limited by God's word. And that, in the long run, strengthens you 
and leaves you more loving and more loved. And that's not just my speak or pastor speak, because notice in the text that that's exactly how Paul speaks to Timothy. Verse 18 says, this command, but then it says, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Timothy is under orders like a good soldier, but he is also a son, a spiritual son who has been entrusted with the father's mission. Sometimes, uh, maybe most of the time you can ask uh, Matt and some of our other soldiers later, but most of the time I would imagine a typical soldier must blindly follow orders. He may not fully understand what he's doing or how it fits into the bigger picture. However, that picture does not do full justice to Timothy's calling or our calling. He is charged, yes, but he is also entrusted as a beloved son. This word and concept of being entrusted will appear again and again in the pastoral epistles in a time before the completion of the New Testament. Remember, they don't have a completed New Testament. It was exceptionally important that faithful men preserve, they were entrusted with, the truth, and that this command or charge be handed down accurately and guarded thoroughly. Ministry then and now is not just following orders blindly, it is guarding the deposit. It is something entrusted, something precious. Immediately after giving his disciples what we call the great commandment, Jesus said this to them in John 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Spiritual warfare then, for all of us, involves receiving orders from God and his word, but not blindly or impersonally, but rather as a treasure that is entrusted to our care. We aren't just given orders. We are given the mission and the power to do it. We are not so much field soldiers with dog tags unknown to our general. Rather, we are sons and daughters of the king, and we are treated that way. Even the hairs of our head are numbered, and we are entrusted with the Father's plan. So the mission of God in the world involved order and authority in the church. However, that order and authority is deeply spiritual, loving, and personal. So first, he is a man fighting under orders, and so are we. Second, he is a man who is to reinforce from the past. He is to reinforce from the past. Look at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Timothy is to go back in his past and reinforce himself for the current battle. Okay, that sounds good, but how do you wage war using prophecies from your past? To some of us, that may sound a little bit like a role-playing game or science fiction. What did Paul mean when he told Timothy to fight the good fight by them, by these prophecies? 
Well, Paul tells us later on in these letters more of what he has in mind. So in 1 Timothy 4, for example, he writes this, Do not neglect the gift you have, Timothy, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And again in 2 Timothy, For this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy's work was hard. He did not have the complete New Testament that you have on your lap right now. He was half Gentile. His dad was a Gentile. Think about trying to pastor a church in the deep south 50 years ago while being half black. That might give you a bit of a feel for how Timothy was probably seen by a lot of people. He also had digestive problems, and he seems to have been a little cautious, maybe even a little timid. On top of all that, he is young. The men he is going up against were older. They had been elders in the church for some time. They were knowledgeable and respectable members of the community. Paul is telling Timothy, when you get scared... When you think to yourself, who am I to do this? At that moment, wage warfare with those prophecies that happened at your ordination. Remember what happened when the elders laid their hands on you. Now, we don't know. The Bible doesn't record for us that specific event in detail. But we do have a wonderful parallel in Acts 13. There we read these words. While the church were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Here is the same exact language we see throughout the pastorals. So Paul is saying to Timothy, Remember your ordination. Fan that gift into flame. Laying on of hands, or the word we use today, ordination, comes from the life of Moses. This is where, remember, the early church got their doctrine. Remember, they didn't have a complete New Testament. What they knew was that Moses laid his hands on Joshua in order to ordain him to leadership. Deuteronomy 34 puts it this way, And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And ever since then, ever since then, elders have laid their hands on men, passing God's blessing and calling and authority to a new generation. Timothy then was to harness that moment in his life, his ordination, and draw strength from it in order to fight the good fight. In moments of hesitancy, Timothy was to look back on the godly men who had prophesied about him. He was to recall the laying on of hands by the elders and by the apostle Paul and then go to war with those prophecies at his back. And that is why it's so important, even today, that we lay hands on men to ordain them to the office of pastor, elder, and deacon, so that in moments of intense fear, they can go back and say, 
I didn't self-appoint. I didn't make this up. I didn't call myself. I was surrounded and tested by other faithful men. I was put under authority. To survive in these offices, one must know that they are called by God and not through their own wisdom. Without ordination, without the laying on of hands, we must always ask ourselves, was this just my idea after all? Now, you might be tempted once again to say, how nice for Timothy. He could go back to those amazing moments and take courage. And you might even say to a lesser degree to me, how nice for you as a pastor that you can go back to your ordination and remember that you didn't self-appoint and that many godly men appointed you. But you may be asking, what about me? I think there is here really great application for non-pastors, non-elders, non-deacons. First of all, for many of you in our congregation, you can and you should go back to your conversion and to the mighty things done by God to bring you to himself in that period of your life. When Satan tempts you to despair or suggests that God is not with you or not for you, those moments in your life, all that was said and done, all that happened so powerfully, can be a huge source of strength and encouragement. For those of us like me, who do not have a specific conversion moment, but who were converted over time under the ministry of godly parents, we too can go back to all that God has done and take courage. I am constantly encouraged by the faith of my parents. I love to think about all the times, all the times, my godly grandparents must have prayed for me before the Lord called them home. We might not, those of us who are covenant kids, we might not have the flash of an adult conversion or a profound moment of ordination like Timothy, but God has given us so much to build upon. Reinforce yourself from the past. So we've seen that this is a work of authority and also under authority. It's a mission, but it's also something we're personally entrusted with as God's family. Second, we've seen that we lean on God's past faithfulness to us, just as Timothy drew strength from his remarkable ordination. Lastly now, this fight, this good warfare, can only be done successfully if we remain faithful to God's word while exercising integrity of life and heart. You must fight two-handed. Look with me at verse 19. Timothy can only complete this mission by holding faith and holding a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. John Stott is one of the great commentators on 1 Timothy. He wrote that this little line, this little sentence here, is far more powerful than we realize. In this little phrase, Paul is telling us how we must fight the good fight. Objectively, first of all, we must hold on to the faith. We must affirm the great truths of Scripture and not let go, even when those truths are unpopular or personally difficult. However, that's only half the battle, because while objectively holding on to truth... 
we must also walk the talk. Subjectively, we need the kind of personal integrity that allows us a good conscience. Now, this is especially true for the elders of the church, but it's also something we can all relate to. Have you ever tried rebuking someone for a sin you yourself are committing? It's difficult, isn't it? It feels like the strength has sort of gone out of your legs. A very uh, experienced and somewhat famous pastor, he put it this way one time. He, He writes, the necessity of a clear conscience should loom planet-like on our horizons. should be a huge issue. Conscious disobedience, conscious disobedience will kill our spiritual life. This has been my experience as many years of ministry. I can stand up, he says, to substantial pressure if my conscience is clear. But without a clear conscience, there is no power to endure or resist. Tragically, this is what has happened in Ephesus. These elders lost personal integrity and then began to change the faith, the message, to fit their new lives. That's why Paul writes this sentence the way he does. He says, by rejecting this, that is good conscience, some have then made shipwreck of their faith. It was hard for these elders, you see, to live in the contradiction of what they were actually doing. So they changed the faith to fit their lives. You see, we tend to think, we tend to think that people are logical. That's a common mistake we make. That was a mistake I made a lot, I would say, in the early years of ministry. I thought people heard bad doctrine, embraced it, and then fell into sin. I thought people were basically logical. And let's be honest, we all like to think of ourselves as logical, but we usually aren't. Yes, sometimes there are cases where logically someone comes to a new position and then they adapt their lives. However, that is rare. What we usually do, if we're honest, is adapt our theology to fit our lives. We're unhappy with our marriage, so we change our view of marriage and divorce to allow ourselves to do what we want. Or as one very famous uh, pastor did recently, we have a child who identifies as LGBTQ, and so to hold on to the biblical position will mean pain, rejection, agonizing struggle. So what do we do? We change our position. It's what he did to fit what was going on in his life. John Calvin rightly wrote, a bad conscience, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. Paul says that that is what is happening here. Having let go of personal integrity, they had to realign their theology to match their lives. It's not that complicated, really. We're a lot like our mother Eve. We look, the tree looks good, and so we eat. Satan must laugh at times at how simple we are and how easy to manipulate If he can spoil our conscience, ruin our integrity, he knows our grip on the faith will soon slip. Satan's only fear, his only fear, is a man or a woman who fights two-handed. It's when a man or a woman or a child is fighting two-handed with one hand gripped around the Bible 
and one hand holding a good conscience, it's then that he is afraid. That person he will rage against. He will do everything to stop that person. He rages because he's frightened. He's frightened because he sees his doom. Although all of this is especially important for elders, it is no less real for all of us. The fight is not just out there in the world. It is here, among us and in us, in our hearts. Paul says this a little later on in this uh, First Timothy. We'll get to it. But this is really an incredible verse, and you could just sit with this for the rest of the day and meditate on it. It's First Timothy 4.16. He writes this to Timothy. It's just stunning. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So it's a war. It's a war. Like a soldier, we're called with real authority, but also under authority. The battle is not the hero, the solo hero, going out on his own and taming the world. Rather, it's a coordinated attack. Second, we must look back to the prophecies and to our past for strength. The grace is there, and we need to recall it and to be strengthened. And lastly, it is a fight we can only take with both hands. Without both hands, we will soon be shipwrecked. No one knew the heat of this battle like our Lord and Savior. He was always victorious, especially on the cross. Satan was terrified of him, you know. Remember how the demons squealed pig-like in fear of him? Satan was right to be scared. The demons were wise to be terrified. In Jesus, you see, they saw what they feared most of all, They remember the ancient promise, he will crush your head. So a true man, a true man, the first they had ever seen since Adam, a true man, a man under the authority of his father, walking in the power of his spirit, descended baptism, and armed with weapons for the right hand and the left. What a terrible sight it was for them. And can you imagine the joy of all of heaven, and especially of our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they saw a man, bone of their bone, fully armed, fully faithful, taking back what was once ours. This is our glorious model and our glorious champion. He goes into every battle with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. You never fight alone, never, not once. And here, I think, is the key to it all. We were never called to win, just to fight. We don't have to win because he already has. In my lifetime, I will never vanquish evil from you. I will never vanquish evil from myself or from anyone else, no matter how urgently I fight. But I was never called to win that way. Jesus did that. We just have to stand there. We just have to stand in his victory, especially when it feels like losing, even knowing that we must appear at times absolutely pathetic and weak. Our fight is standing in the victory Jesus alone has won. Second Timothy, the book of Second Timothy, we'll get there. 
uh, it feels like, I, I think it feels like holy ground when you're reading it. Now, all of God's word is holy, don't get me wrong, but there's, there's a certain stillness to 2 Timothy. It's in many ways like visiting a grave, for in that letter we have the very last words of Paul, his dying declaration. Here is how Paul wrote some of the last things he ever did in his life. Here's how he wrote the ending to his own story. He writes to Timothy, the time of my departure has come. I know I'm going to die. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Those are the words of a warrior. And to brother Paul's dying declaration, may we add today our anthem. And maybe this for you as your anthem as it is mine. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Amen. Let's pray. For this fight, our Heavenly Father, uh, we have nothing strong enough with which to compete with the sin within, the sin without. In and of ourselves, we cannot win. But we do this morning once again stand in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, entrusting ourselves entirely to him, knowing that he is on our side and has already defeated the powers with which we wrestle. Fill your people then with new joy and confidence and help them to fight in the very ways that we have discovered this morning. Do all this so that Christ's victory would be evident in the world and that his glory might be filled and filled throughout the world. For we do pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.